0: morning I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. We'll read it together in a second but let me begin with this. The king of Los Angeles was a nickname given to one of the premier mobsters on the west coast of the United States of America. This man was renowned for his ruthless and violent temper and his flamboyant character, his flashy lifestyle and his tabloid exploits. His name was Mickey Cohen, and he was a gangster in the tradition of Al Capone who ran the Hollywood criminal underworld in the 1940s and 1950s. Now, in a book called Loving God, written by Chuck Colson, Chuck Colson recounts how this notorious crime lord flirted with Christianity. Through one of the conversions of his own goons and in concert with efforts of a young evangelist named Billy Graham who held private meetings with Mickey Cohen and invited him to some of his crusades. Mickey was introduced to the gospel and he eventually came to pray a sinner's prayer and news obviously spread like wildfire that this mafioso boss had become a Christian. But sadly it soon became all too apparent that Mickey's profession of faith was a little bit bogus. And the evidence was that his life didn't change. When Billy Graham's organisation urged him to sever ties with his kind of criminal background and his former shady life and his associates with his mob cronies, Mickey Cohen said this. I won't try and do it in an American gangster accent, but here's what he said. You never told me that I had to give up my career. You never told me that I would have to give up my friends. There are Christian movie stars, there are Christian athletes, there are Christian businessmen. So why can't I be a Christian gangster? If I have to give up all of that, if that's Christianity, then you can count me out. Now, we might think that that's a little bit ridiculous to say. Of course, God is not going to say if you can carry on with your Christian, uh, as a Christian gangster. We know that that's a preposterous thought. For who in their right mind would think that God was okay with someone who was continuing to live as a gangster? But unfortunately, the, the idea that, uh, that the gospel is just the doorway into a relationship with Jesus and it's, a, it's just the means to get right with God and it's a ticket to heaven is more commonplace than perhaps we realize in Christianity and in the church and maybe even in our own hearts we often miss that the power and the grace of the gospel is supposed to change us and transform us dramatically. It's supposed to do something that's visible and tangible and discernible in our lives that then continues throughout eternity. And in today's 1 verse 1, the Galatians 2.20, we're going to be reminded of the power-packed gospel. So let's read it together and let's see what it says to us about the power of the gospel, not only to save us, but to change us so that none of us fall into the mistake of Mickey Cohen. God's words, Galatians 2, verse 20. Here's what Paul says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, In the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Why don't we read that again, as it's the most important thing we'll hear this morning. I, you as well, and me, put yourself in the I, if you're a Christian this morning. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me. And gave himself for me. Well, the Galatians was a a Gentile church that had been infiltrated and influenced by false teachers who had snuck into the church and they were denying the heart of the gospel. They were saying to the Galatians that it's not just justification, it's not by faith alone alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, but you have to do something else on top of that in order to be a genuine Christian. And they were teaching and proclaiming a false gospel that required uh, the males in the church to be circumcised and it required everybody in the church to be obedient to the law of Moses, to obey the rituals and the ceremonies and the dietary laws that you find in the Old Testament. And so they were in effect saying, in order to be a Christian, you needed to be a Jew first. And so they were... Misleading the church there, and the church were buying into it. The church were obeying dietary laws; they were obeying the Old Testament, and they were adding to the gospel of Jesus. They were supplementing their faith in Christ through their own works of the law. And so, in Galatians, we have Paul trying to explain the gospel to a people who had a corrupted view of it at best. And so, throughout the book, you get this contrast, these contrasts between Paul holding forth the true gospel and confronting the false gospel of the false teachers. He talks about faith versus works. He talks about grace versus law. He talks about liberty versus legalism. He talks about sonship against slavery and he talks about the fruits of the spirit against the desires of the flesh. And verse 20 is part of the hinge part of the whole book. It sort of summarises the first two chapters and then uh, the chapters 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 are built on what we read in verses 15 to 21 where he's making his main argument that justification is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And these words in verse 20 are wonderful. They're really, really good news for us this morning. So let's hope that God allows them to sink into our souls. But what you'll find in the the focus of verse 20, it's it's not focusing on the cross as a as the power that enables us to be accepted by God and adopted into his family, though that's obviously true and important, the focus of verse 20 is on the new life that we have in Christ through the Holy Spirit. That's the focus, the new life that we have through the Holy Spirit. So Paul is hammering home this idea that the gospel of Jesus Christ is more than just a doorway into a relationship with Jesus. It's more than an escape route from eternal punishment to eternal paradise. It's so much more than that. It's life in Christ. And this is relevant to all of us because whenever we became a Christian, we probably woke up the next morning in the same bed with the same family, with the same job, in the same house, with the same amount of money, with the same amount of looks, the same amount of brain power. And yet, we should make no mistake that something radical has happened to us. We've become new. We are a new person and we have a new purpose that we no longer live for our own glory and our own name, but we've been called to something bigger and greater that we sang about in that last song. A kingdom that belongs to Christ. And our one verse wonder is going to tell us three things about this new life that we enjoy. The three things for us to consider this morning. We're going to see that there's a powerful fact that has taken place that's brought out a powerful reality that now gives us as Christians a powerful new purpose. So, three things. Powerful fact, powerful reality, powerful purpose. Let's begin with that first one, a powerful fact. And that is contained in the first words of the verse where Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. There's a powerful fact contained within those words. But Paul is saying more than, than Christ just was crucified for him he's also saying more that than just simply that Christ's crucifixion has brought benefits to him what Paul is saying in these few words of the first uh, the first part of verse 20 is this that he and all Christians which includes you and me this morning if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ we've been crucified as well we've been crucified as well. That Paul was there physically, it's not that he was crucified physically alongside Jesus, that somehow he thought he was one of the two criminals on the other crosses on Calvary that day. He knows it's not a physical experience, but he is telling us here that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are so united to Jesus that his crucifixion And by inference, all that that accomplished is counted to us as ours. That through faith in Christ, we're so united to him in such a way that his crucifixion, and and by inference, all that he has accomplished for us is somehow counted as our crucifixion as well. So the New Testament tells us four things were nailed to a wooden cross outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Number one, it was Jesus himself. He was nailed to a cross. The God-man in his humanity, was nailed to that cross. Second thing was, there was a public announcement that was nailed above his head, wasn't there? That John 19, 19 tells us, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That was nailed to the cross. The third thing Paul tells us in Colossians 2, 14, that stood against us with all of its legal demands, all of our sin, this too was nailed to the cross. But here Paul tells us in Galatians 2.20 that a fourth thing was nailed to the cross. Perhaps it's a little bit surprising. He tells us that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith in him, then you were crucified too. Now again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Jesus died once for all. He alone was the God-man who atoned for sin by offering himself in our place. And yet, verse 20 says that by faith in Christ... We are so joined to him, so grafted into him, so united to him, that what Jesus experienced and what he accomplished on that cross is considered as something that really and truly happens as if we were nailed to that tree. In fact, Jesus' crucifixion that is counted towards us is not the only thing that we experience through union with Christ. The New Testament goes on to tell us that we who live by faith in the Son of God, our whole lives are found in him now. His perfect life becomes our perfect life. His crucifixion becomes our crucifixion. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. In fact, everything that Jesus ever has done now becomes something that we have done. It becomes ours through our union with him. Faith in Christ is more than just a ticket to heaven. It's being joined to the one who saves us so that our lives now become interpreted through his life. Our story, our life becomes enfolded in another story, in another story, in Jesus' story. Paul can say, I have been crucified with Christ. The, uh, the original language there speaks of, in the Greek, it speaks of uh, a definitive action in the past that has continuing and ongoing effects into the present permanent effects so something that was done but now still continues to affect us and what paul means by that is that jesus when jesus died on the cross he permanently altered who you are and who i am now and who we will continue to be into the future so much so that notice what paul says next in this verse i have been crucified with christ it is no longer i who live. Have you ever thought about what that means? Paul here is saying that the change and the transformation that Jesus brings about inside of the Christian is so radical and so transformative that it actually is like, it's almost like he no longer lives himself. Now yes, he's still Paul, and yes, I'm still Nathan, and you're still you, but... It's as if we no longer live now because we've been crucified. We have died with Christ. Now, again, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that when you become a Christian, somehow your human personality is sucked from you, that you're zapped and you're transformed and you're sort of personalityless, and then God sort of just replaces that with some kind of mysterious uh, kind of um, divine force, like Star Wars or something. Now what Paul means is this, by our union with Christ in his death, we're utterly different on the inside. We're utterly different on the inside. At our very core, at our heart level, we are changed and transformed. We're not the same as we were before. We've been changed forever and that is glorious. In the preceding few verses, Paul has been telling the Galatians that Jesus' death fulfilled the law's requirements and it's broken the power of sin and the dominion of sin over us. And so therefore, for all who trust in Jesus, we no longer live under the dominion of sin or under the weight and the curse of the law. He'll say somewhere else in Second Corinthians 5.17 that we are new creations, the, the new has come, the old way of living, the old life that we had has ended and new life has come and it's a constitutional change at the deepest level that is radical and permanent and that is the powerful fact of the gospel. We've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live. But he doesn't finish there. He goes on to the powerful reality that that fact brings about. So let's look at that. The powerful reality. And it continues in the next few words of the verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Here's the reality now. But Christ who lives in me. Christ who lives in me. It's not enough for Paul to say simply that the death of Christ has put an end to his old self. And made him new. Nor does he say that when he died the old Paul was simply replaced by a new improved version of Paul. He tells us no. Instead a powerful reality has come about through this powerful fact of our union with Christ. Christ lives in Paul. And Christ lives in every believer. And Christ lives in you. The powerful reality is that by faith in Christ alone, the Holy Spirit makes a believer one with Jesus so that we are in him and he is in us. And our hearts that were once under the dominion of sin are now the dwelling place of Christ by his Spirit. The old sinful me and the old sinful you has died and been crucified with Christ. But the replacement is not a new improved you, it's Jesus himself in you. The hope of glory. And my heart and your heart is now new because Jesus lives there. And my heart is now alive because Jesus is alive and he gives life to my heart. So Paul, if we were to rewrite the second half of verse 20, it might say like this, Paul might say like this, I no longer have a life of my own. The life I now have is the life that God puts into me through Christ. I'm a new creation, the old has gone, the new has come. Now nothing is more opposed to the world that we live in. This reality, this powerful reality that, that Paul tells us here in, second, uh, sorry, in Galatians 2.20, nothing is more opposed to the, the self-absorbed, self-obsessed, contemporary world that we live in that has an emphasis on self. So, you, you know, we've said this loads of times before. You can think of all kinds of self-hyphenated words. Self-esteem, self-improvement, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self self-self-fulfillment self-indulgence, all of these things are are what the world lives for, because it tells us that there is a God, and that God is self. It's you. And so you can be, and you can do, and you can identify as what you want, and who you want, as long as you're true to yourself. And the Bible says, "Eh -eh." verse 20, we died. We died with Christ. And it's no longer we who live, it's a death to self. Why? Because Jesus lives in me. Now, of course, Paul still had a physical body. He still, he tells us in the next few words, he still, the life that he lives in the flesh, he still has a body, he still lives as a normal human being. Something weird has not happened to him. And of course, we still have human bodies and we still experience life in the flesh. We're still ourselves. We still have a self. But what Paul is getting at here is that the the centre of our universe, the the centre of our world, the thing that we orbit around, that we orientate to, has now changed. From us at the centre and everything revolving around me, where I'm dominated and governed by me and what I want now, life has changed. The orbit and the centre of our orientation has changed to Jesus. So that he's at the centre. So that he's the one in whom my life should revolve around. So that he's the one who dominates and controls my thoughts and my pleasure and my glory. Our whole identity has now been changed and established and defined and governed and dominated through our, by our union with Christ. Just turn it down a bit, it's ringing... It means that our earthly existence is no longer lived for ourselves. It's a life of believing dependence upon Christ and obedience to the Son of God, who, notice what Paul says at the end of verse 20, who loved me and gave himself for me. To have a healthy self-image in this world, we need to see ourselves as God sees us. And how does he see us? He sees us not as self, he sees us in Christ. We have new life through Christ, which brings about new desires for holiness, new desires for God, new desires for heaven. New de- life has changed, everything is different, a powerful reality has come about through the gospel. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But he's not done there yet. He now introduces to us the powerful purpose for which we now live. Powerful purpose, point number three. And this is what he says in the next few words of this verse. The life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What that means is that our story doesn't end with the cross and crucifixion, that powerful fact that Jesus has died for us and we have died with him. Nor does it end at the empty tomb and the resurrection power and the powerful reality that we enjoy through union with Christ, that he lives within us. Those two things come together to produce a third thing. We have a powerful new purpose. We are called to live a life of faith, responding to the love and the sacrifice of Christ. See, that those, those last few words there are the motivation for us to fulfill this powerful new purpose. Why should we live a life of faith? Well, because we have one who has already loved us. He's already given himself for us. He's already done everything that we need And so our response is, and now the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. As we've already said, Paul has been hammering home the message that in Galatians that just in Christ alone. And it's all by grace alone. But verse 20 here teaches us as well that an implication of our salvation is that we live lives of faith. What he means is this. Saving faith is not just a one-time decision that you, uh, that you can, re- you can't reduce saving faith to just something you did in the past, to, a, to an event where you got saved, to where you walked an aisle or put your hand in the air or invited Jesus into your heart or however you sort of responded in faith the first time. No, Paul says, the life I now live today is a life of faith. The life of faith, the Christian life, is not just looking back on something you did in the past. It's today, looking to the cross, looking to Christ in a dynamic, the dynamic reality of Jesus lives in me. He has died to save me. He has been raised, and he's raised me up to new life, and he lives within me, and he now calls me to a life of faith. And this life of faith, living for Christ, with Christ in me, is supposed to permeate every aspect of a believer's life every single day that we're alive. It's... It's supposed to be that the faith that we have in Jesus is displayed in a life of faith every day, not just in a profession of faith 20 years ago. That our faith in Jesus Christ is displayed in a life of faith that is no longer motivated by our agendas and our ambitions, by our goals and our glory. But our powerful new purpose is supposed to be shaped by the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Supposed to be motivated by that. It's supposed to reflect his glory to others, his grace to others. The life of faith is is supposed to give purpose and direction to all of our words, to all of our deeds, towards our actions, our thoughts, our attitudes, our relationships. Everything that we have in this life, the life we now live in the flesh, whatever we face every single day is supposed to be lived as a life of faith in Christ. So it means something like this. If you're a a Christian mum and you speak with patience where once you have spoken in anger, you're experiencing the reality of Christ in you. If you are a husband who comes home tired after work but you still serve your wife and your family, that's living in the power of the indwelling Christ. That's living the life of faith. If you are a friend and you choose to the minor offences of a friend and continue that relationship and continue to be friends with that person where once you might have snubbed them or turned your back on them or said, oh, I've had enough of you, then you're choosing to live the life of faith. And you display Christ in you. See, what Paul says here is intensely practical. And it has the potential to radically alter the way that we live and the way we respond every single day. So think about this. What might the life of faith look like for you this afternoon, this evening, before, during and after the football? Oh, we can say, oh yeah, the life of faith, are England going to go in. And they will. <laughs> but if the most unlikely thing should happen and they lose... How does the life of Christ and the life of faith affect me and change me so that I respond differently to how I might have done? For us, a powerful purpose through the powerful reality of Christ in us that comes about through the powerful fact of Christ's gospel work. It might be that we extend mercy and grace and love and kindness and compassion and forgiveness to others just as Christ has extended it to us. It might be that we demonstrate endurance and forbearance and long-suffering and perseverance and other Christ-like character traits that come about from a new heart. We're called to live a life of faith in response to the one who has loved us and given himself for us. What's that going to look like for us? Jesus has moved into our hearts. We have new life. We've got new resources. We have new potential. The basic DNA of the Christian has been radically altered. And we're part of a new story. Christ's story of redemption. And that's the glory of this one verse wonder. There's a powerful fact, a powerful reality and a powerful purpose. We are alive by to live for the glory of Christ. Let's pray.